BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Bonjour, madame et monsieur. Hi, everyone. Two of the most important questions this novel tackles are these. First, are we motivated by hatred? As an extremely tribal or packed species, are we humans psychologically hardwired to sacrifice our lives because of hatred of the other tribe or nation? Throughout history, warfare has been one of the most constant human affairs in which millions of people give up their lives safeguarding their tribes or conquer another tribe. This brings me to the second most important question this amazing novel poses. Are men the disposable sex? The burden of fighting in a war has predominantly fallen on the shoulders of men. This has been true thousands of years ago and even today the majority of soldiers dying in action are men. Louis Ferdinand Selin was one of Charles Bukowski's favorite authors. His masterpiece Journey to the End of the Night is an absolutely brilliant novel, perhaps one of the best of the 20th century French literature. The novel gives insight into the human nature, saying that we are not motivated by kindness or altruism, but by hatred. Despite being a somewhat pessimistic novel, it is incredibly artistic, deeply psychological and profoundly philosophical about the human condition. So today I'll tell you all about Selin's life, summarize his masterpiece and discuss some of the themes in one of the most profound novels of the 20th century. Whilst trying to answer whether hatred is a great motivator in human psychology as well as whether evolution has designed men as disposable sex. Louis Ferdinand Selin was born in 1894 on the outskirts of Paris. His schooling was interrupted due to his family's poverty. As a young boy, he had to work odd jobs. But it didn't stop him from reading and educating himself. He loved books so much that he always carried some with him. Aged 18, he volunteered for the French army. Two years later, World War I erupted during which he was injured. Now he was no longer able to fight. He was sent on foreign missions, first to London and later to the French colonial Cameroon in Africa. When he fell ill, he returned to France in 1918 and pursued a degree in medicine. The ambitious young man also got himself a woman, the result of which was a daughter a year later. In 1924, aged 30, he graduated from the University of Paris as a qualified doctor. He found himself a job as a health expert in Geneva, Switzerland, at the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations. But this job cost him his marriage due to distance. In 1926, his wife divorced him, but Selin, being smart and versatile, found himself an American lady, whom he credited as helping him to become a writer. In 1927, he left Geneva and moved to Paris to start his own clinic. 
but two years later he gave that up and started writing Journey to the End of the Night, which he published in 1932. Selena became an overnight sensation. The novel hit a chord with the French people. The Great Depression of 1930s cost millions of Americans their job, but in France it was the opposite. There were not enough manpower to work the economy. Just to give you a historical context, France lost 1.3 million people in the First World War and 3 million people wounded, most of them young men. So the novel spoke to the French people literally because Céline wrote in a language that was unique at the time. He wrote in a language of the working class, honest, vulgar, but also extremely poetic. While continuing his medical work, in 1936, Céline published his second novel, Death on Installment Plan also translate as death on credit. Not only the novel captures his experience of being a doctor among the gritty Parisian underclass world, it also captures the mood, language, the poverty and the raw honesty of life at the bottom. Around this time he also became interested in fascism and saw a Germany-France alliance as a way to save Europe from what he deemed a Jewish conspiracy. This damaged his reputation as a great writer. When World War II broke in 1939, while failing the draft due to his physical disability, he was given a job as a doctor in the service of the French government. When the Germans occupied France, Céline aligned himself with the Germans and his unsavory political views made him a target for the French nationalists. When France was liberated in 1944, he first fled to Germany and then to Denmark where he was arrested. He spent about a year in prison pending an extradition to France to be tried as a traitor. Now all his books were banned in France and he was a total disgrace. A few years later, while still in Denmark, he was tried in France in absentia and found guilty. But because of his Medal of Honor during the First World War, he was pardoned in 1951. He returned to France and managed to republish his books and continued writing until his death in 1961. Today he's loved and hated in equal measures. People still read his novels but also loathe him for his anti-Semitism and collaborating with the Germans. But his novels resonate with a lot of people due to his pessimistic and bleak view of human nature. To illustrate this, let me summarize his most famous novel, A Masterpiece of French Literature. Louis Ferdinand Céline's Journey to the End of the Night was published in 1932 when he was in his 30s, so he drew in his own personal experience of fighting during World War I. We are in France and World War I is raging. People are anxious, but there's also a sense of togetherness and unity in the air to fight the Germans. Wars create unity, which is perhaps a human survival trait that we survive together. Young people are called to defend the French Republic. Why? Because Russia is fighting the Germans, so the French have no choice but to join to help their ally, Russia. The responsibility of fighting the enemy falls on young men to enlist themselves to go to the front line. Our narrator, Ferdinand Bardemou, bright medical student, is one of those young men who quit study and volunteers to head to the front line to defend his country's ally, Russia. You could say his enthusiasm of fighting in the war got the better of him. Back then, to be a man was to stand up and defend your country. Going to war is a man's innate duty, so Ferdinand obliges. When he arrives at the front line in the midst of action, he realizes war is not fun in game. People actually die. It's horrible. Quote, so there was no law against people shooting at people they couldn't even see. 
he begins to question his decision of going to war. Not just that, he questions the whole purpose of war. Die for what? He doesn't even know the enemy soldiers. He doesn't even hate the Germans that much anyway. One night, he meets another soldier, Leon Robinson, who also has similar mindset. Both thinking they're fighting a futile war decide to get out of it alive. The term shooting yourself in the foot comes from soldier trying to escape war. But these two young men take some more drastic measures of actually trying to get captured by the enemy. Quote, There are different ways of being condemned to death. Oh, what wouldn't I have given to be in jail instead of here? What a fool I had been. If only I had the little foresight and stolen something or other when it would have been so easy and there was still time. I never think of anything. You come out of jail alive, out of war you don't. The rest is Balani. They understand a bizarre fact that being in jail means one lives, while being in the front line means a high probability of unknown death. So criminals in French prisons had a better chance of survival than those heroes at the front line. The irony. Together they decide to leave their post so they are captured by the Germans. They make a rational calculation that the probability of surviving inside a German prison is far greater than being out there on the front line. Ironically, however, despite the attempt to find some Germans to capture them, they fail. The Germans are there to kill them, yet they find no Germans to arrest them. That is war. It's meant to kill, not capture. Disappointed, our narrator returns to his post, but he gets lucky. Not what you think. He, in fact, gets injured. He's taken to a hospital where he's also given a medal of honor for his bravery. How ironic, he wanted to get captured by the Germans, but thanks to his injury, he is discharged. It's not total freedom though, he's waiting to recuperate and recharge so he can join the war once again. While in Paris, he meets Lola, an American nurse, and they fall in love. She tells him a lot about America, and specifically her life in New York, intriguing him immensely, which inspires him later on to visit America, the land of the free. They make love, and life is wonderful. They are happy, but the danger is lurking. Here's another terrible twist. Quote, Lola was a good kid alright, but between us stood the war, the monstrous frenzy that was driving half of humanity, lovers or not, to send the other half to the slaughterhouse. Naturally, this interfered with our relationship. While visiting an amusement park together, they come to a place where people shoot a target for fun. Lola turns to him, you are a war hero, you are a good shot, you've got the medal of bravery. Here, Selin makes it clear that the only reason Lola respects and loves Ferdinand is his medal of honor, his bravery. So women look up to men who sacrifice their lives. Ferdinand, however, seeing guns bring back his traumatic experience on the front line. He has a panic attack. He hallucinates thinking people are shooting him instead of the target. They leave the amusement park, but the panic attack becomes a recurring experience. In his delirium, Ferdinand shouts that they are shooting him. Delirium is a recurring theme throughout the novel, like some it was in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment when Raskolnikov murdered the innocent women. Lola is concerned, so she asks him point blank, what is wrong? Ferdinand hesitates, but thinking Lola would understand him, he confesses his secret. Lola is a nurse, so she can understand it. If anyone, a nurse would empathize with an injured soldier. Besides, she also loves him. So he sits up and blurts out, I hate wars. I am afraid of dying. People die for no reason. Lola looks at him, 
Are you serious? Yes, war is bullshit. People die for what? Again, our young hero miscalculated all. Lola loved him because he was brave. Because he was a soldier fighting the Germans. Because he was injured fighting the enemy. Now she has absolutely no respect for him. Lola says, Oh Ferdinand, you are an absolute coward. You are as loathsome as a rat. And with that, she leaves him. Ferdinand is devastated. But not for long. Soon he meets another beautiful girl. They're happy. Ferdinand is happy. But when she finds a richer man, she abandons him. Again, he's heartbroken. Our narrator notices a pattern here. Girls tend to go for the rich men. But ironically, these wealthy men, mostly Argentinians for some reason, are the very people who profited from the war. In other words, poor young men die without really knowing the true purpose of the war. Ferdinand realizes the system is rigged. Healthy men die to benefit the wealthy men who get all the women. That is the history of humanity. Back at the hospital, Ferdinand goes through a rigorous psychological test to see if he's fit to fight again. Somehow he fails the patriotic test and is discharged. Finally, he gets his freedom. What does he do? Well, he has had enough of France, so he heads to Africa. Again, there's an ironic twist. When he's given a job by the French colonial company to facilitate trade in Africa, he realizes the system is rigged to benefit the French at the expense of the locals and workers. Here, he also incidentally meets his frontline buddy, Leon Robinson, who also understands the corruption and does his part by cheating the company. In other words, he's stealing from the colonial thieves. One night, while sick from malaria and delirious, Ferdinand burns the whole trading post down and flees the area. The locals take him from the French colony to the Spanish post where he meets a Catholic priest. Surely he can help him. But priests in this part of the world are also part of the system, buying and selling things and people. So the priests are as much in it as the merchants. He's sold as a slave to a ship that is heading towards New York. During the journey, Ferdinand is still sick and feverish. Once he's recovered, he talks his way out of the quarantine and heads to Manhattan to search for his American girlfriend, Lola, the lovely nurse in Paris. It turns out Lola is rich. She wants nothing to do with him. To keep him out of sight, she gives him some money and tells him, go away. He gets the message, so he heads to the American industrial heartland, Detroit, to work at the Ford Motor Company. He's now part of millions of men who churns out cars after cars. The work is soulless and exhausting. To relieve the stress, he frequents a prostitute, his only source of happiness and meaning for the time being. Another bizarre twist is that he meets his war buddy, Leon Robinson, once again in Detroit. It seems he's following him like a shadow. He's like a ghost soldier of past dead men who follows everywhere he goes. Leon is just a loser now, serving the underside of Detroit. Now we will leave Ferdinand and follow Leon for a while. Later on, Leon returns to France where he is hired to kill someone. But again, in another ironic twist, his booby trap misfires and blinds him instead. But as long as you're alive, you have the universe throws opportunities you away. Despite his disability, he finds a woman to care for him and they decide to marry. But they have no money. To get rich quickly, they copy Raskolnikov's trick. They kill an old rich woman who runs a little gallery. They pretend the woman just died, so now Leon and his girlfriend are in charge of the gallery. Things are fine. Finally, there's hope. 
He's got a woman, he has money and a decent job, but life catches up to him. At some point, he gets bored of her and the gallery, so he escapes. The theme of nomadic escapism runs really deep in the novel. They go to war, but they decide it's not for them. Then they head to Africa, and there too, they're not happy. They go to America, but they're not happy there either. Men in this novel escape any kind of commitment or being shackled to one place. So for Selin, a man's spirit is not to be tamed. Meanwhile, there's nothing hopeful happening to our narrator Ferdinand America, so he decides to return to Paris to finish his medical degree, perhaps to help alleviate pain in this world. As a qualified doctor, he sets up his clinic in the poor side of Paris. You think Detroit was bad, here things are far worse and more hopeless. He sees nothing but misery and pain every single day as he deals with the sick and the poor. Later, he gets a job at a mental asylum. Outside his normal work, he also teaches English to his boss. Once the boss has enough English to read English poems, he decides to abandon his job and leave Ferdinand to run the asylum. So our hero has made it. Now he runs an asylum, perhaps the most difficult job anyone could have wished for. One day, he sees Leon, his old war buddy, once again. He asks what happened. He tells him that he's on the run, not from the government or war, but he's on the run from a woman, his partner. Why? I don't want to get married. Oops. The man has a serious commitment issue. First it was a war and then even tried to defect to the enemy. Later in Congo, Africa, he even defrauded the company he was working for and now he's on the run from his girlfriend. If anything, the novel shows that there is no genuine escape. Death will catch up with you at some point. The woman tracks him down and threatens to call the police if he doesn't marry her. Forced marriage. Marriage is just like a war. You volunteer, but there's no way out unless you shoot yourself in the foot. A nurse steps in to mediate between the couple. It seems everything patched up. To celebrate, they go out, they have fun, then they take a taxi. Inside a taxi, the space is a bit tight, so it's so claustrophobic that the couple start arguing. She asks him to love her. He is honest. In a mirror image of Ferdinand saying he hates war, Leon says love is disgusting. She thinks he means her vagina is dirty. He corrects her, no, love itself is disgusting. But the woman is too furious with him, so furious that he shoots him. The irony of all, Leon, who survived the Germans, colonial authorities in Africa, American Detroit, is now finally killed by a woman who loved him so much. Love is as dangerous as war. Our narrator Ferdinand remains alive to reflect on life and death and the meaning of it all. Analysis Progress Selina was an atheist. He believed in only one chance in life. This makes us inherently selfish. We can be led to believe in social progress, but in reality, progress is futile because it benefits those who come after us. When you think of a nation, millions of soldiers had to sacrifice their lives for a civilization to continue. All those soldiers died in their teenagers or twenties in the hope of an afterlife or honor or glory or human progress without having any tangible rewards in this life. No soldier dies believing they are fighting for evil. All soldiers on both sides of the battle die thinking they are the good guys. But for Selin, this death is ultimately in vain. It only helps the powerful. For the generals, kings, priests, women and children to survive, Able-bodied men have to sacrifice their own lives. That is the state of human nature. Quote, 
People live from one play to the next. In between, before the curtain goes up, they don't quite know what plot will be or what part will be right for them. They stand there at a loss, waiting to see what will happen. Their instinct folded up like an umbrella, squirming, incoherent, reduced to themselves. That is, to nothing. Cows without a train. 20th century was one of the bloodiest ones in history. All sides believed in progress. About 100 million people died during the two world wars. While we benefit in terms of living in a better, safer, more affluent time, those who perished got nothing. So we are foot soldiers of progress. Now I'll read a passage from the novel so you get to see it for yourself. Here Ferdinand and Lola talk about war and courage. Is it true that you've gone mad, Ferdinand? She asked one Thursday. It is true, I admitted it. But they will treat you here. There is no treatment for fear, Lola. Is it as bad as all that? It is worse, Lola. My fear is so bad that if I die a natural death later on, I especially don't want to be cremated. I want them to leave me in the ground, quietly rotting in the graveyard, ready to come back to life, maybe. How do we know? But if they burn me to ashes, Lola, don't you see? It will be over, really over. A skeleton, after all, is something like a man. It's more likely to come back to life than ashes. Reduced to ashes, you're finished. What do you think? Naturally the war. Oh, Ferdinand, you are an absolute coward. You are loathsome as a rat. Yes, an absolute coward, Lola. I reject the war, everything in it. I don't deplore it. I don't resign myself to it. I don't weep about it. I just plain reject it and all its fighting men. I don't want anything to do with them or it. Even if there were 995 million of them, I were all alone, they would still be wrong and I would be right. Because I'm the one who knows what I want. I don't want to die. But it's not possible to reject the war, Ferdinand. Only crazy people and cowards reject war when their country is in danger. If that is the case, hurrah to the crazy people. Look, Lola, do you remember a single name, for instance, of any soldiers killed in the Hundred Years' War? Did you ever try to find out who any of them were? No. You see, you never tried. As far as you're concerned, they are as anonymous, as indifferent, as the last atom of that paperweight, as your morning bowel movement. Get it in your head, Lola, that they died for nothing, for absolutely nothing, the idiots. I say it and I'll say it again. I've proved it. The one thing that counts is life. In 10,000 years, I'll bet you, this war, remarkable as it may seem to us at present, will be utterly forgotten. Maybe here and there in the world, a handful of scholars will argue about its causes or the dates of the principal hectatomes that made it famous. Up until now, those are the only things about men that other men have thought worth remembering after a few centuries, a few years, or even a few hours. I don't believe in the future, Lola. So Cillian's character refuses to take part in social progress. He rebels against history. Why? Progress is built upon a foundation, not kindness or altruism, but hatred. Wars are only won if you truly hate the other side. If you go to war half-hearted and doubt the enemy is being bad, you are less likely to win. In other words, wars are the true manifestation of our innate ability to hate others. In every war, the enemy is painted as evil. Why? Because evil is an easy thing to hate. All the niceties are surface-level bullshit. 
hatred is one of the biggest drives that fuels and motivates us to risk our lives in order to destroy the other. Not just in wars, but even in other realms of human existence, our hatred for others can motivate us to achieve great things. A woman rejecting in high school is often the biggest driver of a man's success later on. Perhaps the best example of this hatred is revenge. In Homer's epic The Iliad, Achilles refuses to fight the enemy until his best friend is killed. Now he goes completely insane in his attempt to take revenge. As the title suggests, Journey to the End of the Night depicts the dark side of human nature. Just like in Camus' writings, Céline shows the life is meaningless, absurd and bleak. The novel is an allegory that life is a journey in the darkness for a lot of people. And some lucky ones, those in position of power and wealth, get to travel during the day. For the majority of us poor and weak, however, life is a treacherous long journey on a ridge of some precarious mountain in the dark. And the chance of you falling to your death is very high, especially for young men during wars. Quote, but just as a sick man changes sides in bed and in life, so we too are entitled to move from side to side. It is the only thing we can do, the only defense that has ever been found against fate. But the irony is that we all hate others often without ever meeting them. During wars, one individual kills another without blinking an eye, simply because one is German and the other is French. That's it. If you strip them of their clothes or culture, they are the same. But for one to survive, the other has to die. It's random. A German soldier has never harmed a French soldier in their lives. But on the battlefield, there is no time to use reason and rationality. Quote, Suddenly he fell asleep in the candlelight. After a while I got up to look at his face. He slept like everybody else. He looked quite ordinary. There ought to be some mark by which to distinguish good people from bad. Cillian uses his secondary character Robinson like the ghost of all dead soldiers who pop up everywhere fighting on ghosts. He just shows up suddenly and then disappears suddenly. Robinson and Ferdinand are two sides of the same coin, with Robinson being more cynical or the animal side inside of us. He lies, he cheats, he murders, things Ferdinand himself is often hesitant to do. He's a device for the darker side of him, a beast inside everyone that very few get to see or experience. Quote, everything that is important goes on in the darkness, no doubt about it. We never know anyone's real inside story. Throughout history, wars seem to come periodically to cull men. Evolutionary speaking, men are the disposable sex. Basically, the way men and women are biologically designed, one is far more important to the continuation of the human race than the other. For instance, one man can impregnate hundreds of women, so a society with fewer women is doomed to fail. In other words, once there are too many men and very few women, wars act as a natural culling process in which most men die without ever reproducing. Scientists, through DNA analysis, have established that throughout history, the majority of men never had the chance to have a child in order to pass on their genetic legacy. For example, 8,000 years ago, for every man who reproduced, 17 women reproduced. So wars were in a way to cull a lot of men, so more men were available for a minority of the powerful men. Nature doesn't care about morality. Throughout history, the vast majority of war casualties are men. 
So Asilian, being a cynical man, understood that war only benefited a minority of men who were in charge because not only they were using the young men to fight for them, but in reality more dead men meant less competition for women. In fact, you could say the way male and female biology work is that you don't need too many men. You just need the best men, the most adept, the most powerful, intelligent to procreate with the majority of women. After all, women generally look for the best men to have a child with. But there might be a plot twist in human's tale. In modern warfare, the courageous men die leaving the more rational, educated men to procreate, so perhaps helping the species to become ever smarter, and at the same time less brave. So wars are a sure way to get rid of a lot of young men from the gene pool, in the same way that male animals lock horns for the privilege of mating with the female. So war is evolution's mechanism that the human gene pool remains strong. Of course, this is only seeing things from an evolutionary biological perspective. Culture, religion, morality and the legal system also play a major role in how men and women mate, and as a counterbalancing forces against our primal biological mating strategies. Defiance What's the most unique aspect of Cillian's writing is the bleakness of life and the tragedy of death, especially during the war. For Cillian, survivors never honorable. His characters try to be captured so they can survive in the enemy's prison. They do not accept their fate as, as an anonymous death in the battle scene, so they try to prolong their lives even if it means living in disgrace as coward. Society honors the dead soldiers, but evolution honors those who survive and procreate. So Cillian shows that honor of dying in the war means nothing in the long run. Between an honorable death and disgraced life, Céline says it's always life. There's nothing more important in life, so Céline is like Nietzsche and Camus, both of whom taught life was the most precious thing in the world. To celebrate life, one must defy wars. Of course, this is also true in our own life. He was convicted of collaborating with Nazis, but it didn't stop him from returning to his home country and living until his biological clock stopped. This defiance is also apparent in Céline's own language in the novel. He went against the French literary establishment by adopting a very vulgar working-class language. When the novel was published, people loved it for its raw honesty, but the literary dinosaurs considered it too vulgar. The same happened to Charles Bukowski and to some extent to Mark Twain. His linguistic style tears through the bookish style to bring back a natural spoken language and give it a medical treatment that is more artificial tone to it. This poetry and the furious voice of a man stifled by metal chains. He's different from Kafka because Selin's characters defy the system. They don't accept their fate. His characters are not as stifled as Kafka's are. They can move around and always on the run. Selin's writing is more artistic, more beautiful and and more menacing at times. His characters are expressive, freer and gets to enjoy certain things in life, and one of those things being beauty. In Selin's writing, the physical beauty of a woman is one of the most redeeming aspects of a man's life. Again, we go back to biology and evolution. Female beauty is one of the things that brings true joys to his male characters. For him, the human life is a dance towards death, and women's legs are the most prized item of beauty in the novel. Quote, lots of men are like that, their artistic leanings never go beyond the weakness for shapely thighs. 
Charles Bukowski also talks about women's legs quite a lot, but it's the irony though. He prizes women's legs, but ironically, it is him who's on the move all the time. The second most prized phenomena in a man's life that comes close to female beauty is a man's own creativity. In the midst of dark, bleak world, Celine's writing shines beautifully. There's nothing more profound in a man's life than being truly creative. His novels are like music, rhythmic experience that is raw, natural, and incredibly honest. So Celine knew that people didn't read anymore due to invention of TV and films. In order to be read, he had to be extremely creative. Storytelling Selin was writing at a time when films and TV shows were slowly replacing the written stories. So for the writers to compete with other media, they had to be creative in their storytelling style. While for some TV and films discouraged them from writing altogether, for Selin this was a great motivation to be innovative in their writing craft. So instead of writing novels of ideas that were dry and boring, Selin focused on stirring emotions in his readers. His style of eliciting incredible feeling inside the reader became Selin's biggest weapon, not only attracted readers to him but also made the writing process more interesting for himself. As a result, he ignored the formal language and instead adopted a natural, fluent street language that was engaging. Since the French literature has a very rich, long history, it is somewhat difficult to steer the giant ship in a different direction. So Selin focused his energy not on new ideas, but rather in how he made his readers feel. Emotions are more powerful than ideas. Again, we go back to nature and biology. So Selin's style of writing is akin to naturalism in that he looks deeper into the human evolutionary biology as a foundation. But he is also radical in that he is not shy in telling truths that are extremely uncomfortable to hear about human nature. His writing is beautiful, poetic, and deep. In a way, his writing is similar to Proust's, but they write about totally different subjects. Proust writes about the middle to upper class environment that is clean and orderly, while Celine writes about those in the basement. In Downton Abbey, the TV show, Proust mingles with the elites upstairs, while Celine is stuck in the basement among the working poor, toiling and hating. Albert Camus is someone who goes between the two. He started in the basement and slowly moved his way out to other floors. Albert Camus was a philosopher, while Céline was an artist. His novels are far more musical and lyrical. Céline's writing is close to Dostoevsky's depth, as well as hypnotic delirium. But it's also similar to the cynicism of Gogol and animalistic tendencies of Bukowski's writing. Céline says, quote, it seemed to me there were two ways of telling stories, the classic, normal, academic way which consists of creeping along from one incident to the next, the way cars go along in the street, and then the other way which means descending into the intimacy of things, into the fiber, the nerves, the feelings of things, the flesh, and the going straight on to the end, to its end, in intimacy and maintain poetic tension in a life, life like metro through an inner city straight to the end. 
The novel is like a burst of energy, a sudden torrent of water let loose, a release after years of keeping things in. When Selin wrote the novel, he was in his late 30s. He had kept it in for a long time. He had remained silent for far too long. The novel reads like a rant, a beautiful, truthful rant of a man furious about life, war, women, and death. We all have these moments in life, and Selin articulates it better than anyone I have ever read. It's also very funny, despite the darkness there's an immense amount of humor. He goes to war, only then realizes he wants to join the enemy. But when he fails to find an enemy to join, he gets injured, which gives him the chance to win a prize. It is Kafkaesque and deeply ironic. Reading Journey to the End of the Night is an experience. It's hard to articulate how it feels to read it because describing this book is like describing a new food to someone who has never heard of it. It's an intuitive experience. To fully know the beauty of this novel, you have to read it. Merci beaucoup. Thank you for watching. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.